Welcome to The Drum Shuffle, a podcast offering insights, perspectives, and conversations for drummers. I'm your host, Jamie Eads. How's it going out there, everybody? Welcome to the Drum Shuffle Podcast. Jamie Eads joining you as I do each and every week. This is episode 151. I hope you're all having a fantastic week out there in Drumland. We're having a great week here in Central Kentucky at the world headquarters of the Drum Shuffle. We have a fantastic interview for you today. I am going to be joined by the great and legendary Chris Parker right after this message from our sponsor, Los Cabos Drumsticks. The best kept secret for drummers is finally out. Los Cabos Drumsticks may look like the sticks you grew up with, but these are not your father's drumsticks. Los Cabos Drumsticks is Canada's number one drumstick brand, and they are coming to a retailer near you. With operations in over 28 countries worldwide, thousands of drummers have already discovered the Los Cabos difference. Using FSC certified wood from Canada and the US, Los Cabos make the finest quality drumsticks, percussion tools, and accessories on the market. The best news, Los Cabos Drumsticks offers you a ton of choice. They have 22 individual drumstick models and 14 percussion tools, many of which are available in three different wood types, maple, white hickory, and red hickory. Red hickory comes from the center or heart of the hickory tree and has been independently proven to be both stronger and more elastic than white hickory without adding a lot of weight. While most drumstick manufacturers have shunned red hickory, Los Cabos Drumsticks has embraced it, becoming the only established stick brand in the world to offer a full line of red hickory drumsticks. To learn more about Los Cabos Drumsticks, visit them online at loscabosdrumsticks.com, follow them on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and don't forget to ask for Los Cabos Drumsticks at your favorite retailer. Dare to be different. Join the Red Hickory Revolution with Los Cabos Drumsticks. All right, guys and girls, as I mentioned, we're going to be joined by the great Chris Parker here in just a moment. Um, If you're not familiar with Chris Parker's playing, first of all, shame on you. You should be. Um, But uh, Chris has put together uh, the Chris Parker Trio, and they've released a few records, but they have a new one coming out uh, called Tell Me. It is a fantastic record. Um, Just uh, his playing is amazing, and it is a smoking hot trio that he has put together. Uh, But Chris has literally played with just everybody under the sun uh bonnie Raitt, paul butterfield uh the list goes on and on and of course he manned uh the stool at saturday night live for several years uh in the late 80s and early 90s uh he's just so uh busy in the new york music scene uh again he, he has played with everybody Uh, He's just a wealth of information, and I know you're going to get a lot out of this interview, so please help me welcome to the Drum Shuffle podcast, Chris Parker. Hey, good afternoon, Chris. How's it going, man? All right, Jamie. Thanks for calling. It's going good. Good. Cool. Well, man, thanks for taking time to come on the Drum Shuffle podcast. We appreciate it. 
any shuffle that I can be a part of, I'm happy. I'm happy to be there. There's so many different kinds of shuffles. I'm telling you now. Well, you know, you um, you kind of complete my trifecta. You, Mark, uh, so, so this will be, um, I will now have had the last three Saturday Night Live drummers on this program. So <laughs> I'm trying to wow. complete the set. <laughs> wow. Uh, so, um, let's, if you don't mind, let's kind of go back into your history a bit. I alluded to a little bit of it there. Um, but you started playing at a really, really early age and, and I've heard some cool stories. I I heard that you started playing professionally at like 11 or 12 years old. Is that right? That is correct. 11 years old were my first, uh, paid gigs backing up strippers. No way. Backing up strippers? Yeah, well, exotic dancers, but they were strippers. I mean, they the idea was that they, you know, come on in a skimpy outfit and eventually everything comes off. <laughs> uh, that's so funny. And, and you know, I know your dad was a musician. He was okay with that, his 11-year-old son playing in strip clubs? Hey, they were happy. I was bringing home $150. Uh, and put that into the family pool for food. I had four younger brothers, and my father is professionally is a painter. And at the time, the early 60s, you know, he wasn't doing spectacular. Uh, he was working, but it was, it was great to have some extra income coming in for food and clothing and uh, books for school and all that stuff. So they were happy. That's amazing. You know, I, I just, I can't even imagine you were playing professionally at an age before I had even picked up a pair of drumsticks. That's fantastic. <laughs> so, um, and I know that that kind of transitioned your, your first, I guess, touring gig, um, was with Butterfield, right? Yes. I, I was in a rock band before that and we did, uh, a few little tours. We actually did a tour as the opening act for a, a movie about Jimi Hendrix called Jimi Hendrix at Berkeley. We had the same manager, a guy named Michael Jeffrey, who passed away. And uh, he was kind of breaking us in, and he had this movie to promote. Hendrix had just passed away, and he was trying to capitalize on that. Uh, the bigger part of the tour was the movie, then Richie Haven's, than us. Oh, wow. Uh, we were the opening act and then Richie Havens and then the actual movie. That was the, um, that was the show. Wow. Richie Havens. That's man. That's some powerful stuff there. So, so, I mean, you're just a young cat, you know, learning the business and getting to do all these cool things. How did the, how did the Butterfield gig come about? Did he see you playing in that setting and, and offer you a gig? I don't think he saw me with the rock band, uh, you know, straight eighth notes. And uh, <laughs> he saw me in a lot of other groups because the, the rock band called Holy Moses made one album and then sort of drifted apart. And Michael Jeffrey himself, the manager, was killed in a plane crash. Um, so I was in Woodstock, New York, 
and I played with a lot of different groups. I played with an R&B group. I played with a, a gospel group. I played with a bunch of different... I played with a jazz trio and another organ jazz trio. Um, and I played with a country band, and I played with a bluegrass band. And, and all these bands, you know, were working various venues around Woodstock, and a lot of times Paul Butterfield was there. I would... I didn't know it was him, but I would see this guy in the background um, digging the music or staying for a little while and then splitting. So he saw me in all these different contexts before I, I actually had any, uh, before I actually spoke to him. So when I got the call from him, you know, I thought it was a joke. He said, this is Paul Butterfield. You know, I wondered <laughs> if he'd be interested in doing some playing. Uh, with me, and I said, yeah, right, and I hung up on him. <laughs> but he called right back, and he said, no, really, this is Paul Butterfield. You know, I've been checking you out. I heard you with uh, one of the bands was called the Crawfords. That was a gospel group. And another one was called, uh, I don't know, the, the some kind of jazz trio. I heard you with these different bands, and I and I dig your feel, and... So I forget what else he said, but he said, let's get together and do some playing. And I said, sure. Uh, and that's kind of the way it happened. Um, and there were a couple of different configurations that started with um, he and Jeff Muldar, uh, who was in the Tim Kweskin Doug band, and he was kind of a luminary from Massachusetts folk scene and blues scene. He and Jeff Moldar knew this guitarist, Amos Garrett, from Canada, from Toronto. And they had an organist and a bass player from San Francisco, Merle Saunders, great organist who passed away, and John Kahn, great bass player, who's, as far as I know, he's still around. And he was kind of in the Grateful Dead scene and San Francisco music scene. Really great bass player. So they got those two guys from San Francisco and me and Jeff Mulder and Amos Garrett and Paul, and we started playing. We did a, a little summer tour, uh, kind of the Northeast. And it was good. It was, it was fun. It was incredible for me, you know, to be with these really great players and, um, great bass player, great organist, great guitarist. And Jeff Mulder and Paul were both singing so there were nice vocals. Um, I don't know. I think they had been getting together, you know, previously, maybe just to sing together. Anyway, we did a summer tour, and then John Kahn and Merle Saunders had to go back to San Francisco. They had commitments out there. With uh, There was a band that was an offshoot of the Grateful Dead called Old and In the Way uh, with Jerry Garcia and a couple other guys. That was one thing they were doing. And Merle Saunders was a, a well-known jazz organist. You know, he had all kinds of gigs in the Bay Area and in Sausalito and in uh, San Diego. And he did the whole West Coast scene. You know, he had his own quartet. So when they went back, we were looking for... Paul and Jeff were looking for an organist and a bass player, and they got this guy, Ronnie Barron, from New Orleans, incredible uh, pianist and organist and incredible vocalist, 
and they got a great bass player, Billy Rich, from Denver, who uh, played with Taj Mahal, still plays with Taj Mahal. And they came east, and we started rehearsing, and it was, it, it got pretty good pretty fast. So we did a record, and then tours, and another record, and some more touring, and we did um, radio shows, and they used to have a thing from the record plant, live from the record plant in Sausalito, and some TV shows like Midnight Special. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that was, yeah, that was at the, at a professional level that I had been a part of before. And I was, you know, I loved it. It was great. And Paul and Jeff and Amos and Ronnie and Billy Rich were all huge influences on me to become a better musician and a better player and, uh, more of a musicologist, you know, get, get acquainted with lots of other styles of music besides what I had been playing, which was jazz and blues and gospel and rock, basically. You know, I, I, had, I wasn't aware of a lot of the folk stuff other than Bob Dylan and, uh, and you know, uh, I can't think of the guy's name now. Um, there were certain... Oh, um, you know, Woody Guthrie, uh, I was familiar with and Pete Seeger and stuff, but not, can you still hear me? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay, great. Um, anyway, sorry, I'm kind of running off. <laughs> no, 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 no. This is all great because, you know, I mean, I know that that was kind of your, um, I, you know, baptism by fire, so to speak, as a really young player. I mean, I think you were probably 19, 20 years old when all this was going on. Um, yeah. So, I mean, you know, I, I just can't imagine what kind of education that must have been. It's kind of like, you know, dr drinking from the fire hose, so to speak, you know. Um, uh, and then I know that, you know, that kind of transitioned your career into... Uh, you know, you mentioned the record plant. I know you started doing a lot of studio work in the early 70s. Um, right. And, you know, your your recording credits are just absolutely mind-boggling. Um, everybody that you've recorded with. And, you know, we can go through any of that that you want to. Um, but being in that scene and recording with so many different artists, I, I would assume, you know, with all those guys saying, Hey, you need to familiarize yourself with all these different genres, you know, get comfortable in all of them. I, I can only imagine, but that had to help you as you started transitioning into more and more session work, right? Absolutely. You know, at first I was just recording in Woodstock. There was basically at that time only the one studio that Albert Grossman owned, Bearsville Studios. And that's where uh, Butterfield recorded. We did both albums there. Uh, and Oh, actually, the second album we did, at, he had a like a residence further down the mountain called Turtle Creek. And they had a remote truck from the record plant that came up and... Uh, that was like a nice playing room, and they uh, brought all the recording equipment. I mean, they brought the microphones in, but the recording equipment itself stayed in the truck. 
but that was still, those were still the only actual, you know, full-fledged recording studio environments that I was involved in. And as Woodstock, you know, became, a, after the festival, Woodstock became like a center for music, kind of a mecca for a lot of people. Uh, more and more people started to come to Woodstock and would say, you know, who's, who's a drummer we can get? And they would call me. So I did uh, Bonnie Raitt album and um, uh, Karen Dalton album. I worked with uh, Happy and Artie Trom. A lot of people that lived there, uh, there was a group called Borderline. There were a lot of different groups, you know, and everybody recorded at the studio at either Bearsville or the Turtle Creek or uh, Todd Rundgren kind of had a rudimentary studio of his own. I did a early record with him. There was this French synthesizer guy, Jean-Yves Labat, crazy, crazy as a loon. <laughs> um, you know, his music was a graph, a colored graph. You know, there were no, no notation uh, per se, but to, you know, he had me read this colored graph along with his, he had like a giant art synthesizer and an early Moog synthesizer. That was some crazy stuff. I don't know whatever <laughs> happened to it, but anyway, yeah, it was my, uh, my own homework that I assigned myself to, to get more acquainted with more styles, you know, whether it was deeper into the blues and researching guys uh, like Fred Bilo or Sonny Freeman or uh, the New Orleans drummers, Ed Blackwell and Jim Black and uh, Freddie Staley and the older guys, Baby Dawes and Zooty Singleton. And I really got into more into those guys and more into... Uh, more ethnic music, you know, Japanese music and Bulgarian music and uh, Native American Indian music, whatever, whatever I could find, literally in the record store, you know, in the in the bins. You, I would spend, you know, hours at the record store looking for stuff that I had never heard before. You know, and some of it was was, oh yeah, I. I get this, and some of it was like, oh, my God, listen to what these guys are doing. You know, where there was uh, uh, Balinese music, you know, where they're doing all this hand clapping and playing on gamelons and stuff. A lot of, uh, or the West African stuff, uh, stuff from different parts of Africa, um, reggae, all this Caribbean music, you know, music from Dominican Republic, music from Haiti, music from Jamaica, uh, and further down, you know, Trinidad and Tobago. Um, that's what's so great about music. You know, it's, there's, it's never ending. You know, you can keep exploring music the rest of your life. I'll, I'll never get to all of it, you know, but I'm, I'm hungry to hear more all the time, which is great. Yeah, well, and I mean, I think that's the mark of a of a true artist, right? Is the the never ending quest to listen to it all. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, it is a quest indeed. <laughs> you know, I mean, I just, I, I, I don't know. There are so many players that I talk to that they're like, well, I, you know, I, I only listen to the blues or I only listen to jazz, and to me, that seems very short sighted. 
you know, um, I, I'm not knocking any of those folks. If that's your thing, that's your thing. But um, there's just so much good music out there. I mean, I think there's two kinds of music, good and bad, right? And taste taste is subjective. But yeah, you know, Ellington said that, I think, you know, there's only good music and bad music. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, you know, all the different thing, all the different styles, all the different international flavors, you know, can only by listening to it can, you know, influence whatever genre you're, you're currently playing, you know, um, the West African stuff definitely can influence jazz, you know, that's where that beat came from, ding, 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 you know, they, they turned it around in West Africa and made it ding, 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 <laughs> Yeah. But that ride cymbal beat, you know, was originally from uh, uh, Yoruba people in, uh, in West Africa. So all those things, you know, that uh, early jazz players and Max Roach and Joe Jones and Melvin Jones, and you know, ad- adopted that stuff and adapted it to the traditional drum set, you know, and played that beat on the ride cymbal instead of playing it on a on a cowbell or a or a log, basically, you know. So, I mean, that's just one example. There, all the. Uh, different influences that you listen to can only enrich your own creativity as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, and I'm going to jump around a little bit here, but I I am curious about, um, you know, your time in the Saturday Night Live band, because I know that led to um, you know, we, we've got to talk about Bob Dylan because I know you, uh-huh. you did some work with Bob. And of course, there's that G.E. Uh, Smith connection there. Um, yep. But you, if my timeline is correct, you replaced Steve Ferroni in the Saturday Night Live band as drummer. Is that correct? Yep. 86. Okay. Right. So you were there 86 to 91, and then I think you had my my pal Matt Chamberlain came in after you and stayed just a year or two. And then, of course, our buddy Sean Pelton has been in that chair yeah. ever since. And you talk about a cool cat, man. Sean is just, uh, he's the, the cat's pajamas, as they say. But um, talk to me a little bit about that, because... One of the things that I get asked about a lot from our listeners, um, especially after I had Matt and Sean on the show, was, Uh you know, how much prep goes into doing the Saturday Night Live gig? And I would imagine that that's a pretty tall order every week, right? It was during the the time, yeah. Um, I don't know if if Matt did a full... Season because they called me back uh, for the back of '91 and '90, and then I was there again in '92. That was my last year. Well, he, he may the, he may have gotten the Pearl Jam call during that time, possibly. Yeah, uh, so exactly, or yeah. Edie Brickell and the New Bohemians, or something. Uh, something else he was doing, and they and they called me back. Um, Steve Ferroni, I knew from the old days at McKell's when I was in a band called Stuff, you know, and Steve was in Average White Band, and some of those guys would come up to McKell's, uh, and Steve was 
you know, amazingly uh, popular at Atlantic Records. He would work with Arif Martin on all these great records, Chaka Khan records, as well as the Average White Band. Uh, and we were good friends. I mean, they were uh, lots of lots of things in common, you know, uh, tap dancing and his his great drumming style and stuff. I was a great admirer of his. So when they called and said, you're replacing Steve Ferroni, that, and Steve Ferroni had to do, uh, got a call to do Duran Duran, I think is what, is when he left Saturday Night Live. So I came in at the end of that year. Anyway, there is a lot of prep involved, you know, depending on what the show is about and how many skits they have that are going to require music or in the old days when I was doing it there was often a guest artist uh, whether it was Elvis Costello or Paul Simon or Aaron Neville and Linda Ronstadt or Leo Sayer or Eric Clapton or Sting or somebody who would, would want to do uh, some music as well as host the show or would want to do music um a music segment, you know, but they didn't bring their own band at those at those times. They would pick, uh, you know, members of the Saturday Night Live band to play with them. So I got to play with a, a lot of great folks that way. And in the really early days, in 75, I used to get called to play with an artist who was appearing on Saturday Night Live, and they would put together a New York band um, like I did Boskags and uh, a bunch of different people, you know, where they would, someone would, uh, I guess Lou Delgado would contract a rhythm section or a band to play behind a certain artist. Uh, and then when I was actually on the show, they did that not as much because people were bringing their own uh, self-contained bands more often, unless it was, you know, Paul Simon or Quincy Jones or someone we would back up. Um, but yeah, there was, you know, you go in on Thursday to do pre-records and rehearse with um, Kevin Nealon <laughs> <laughs> and Mike Myers, you know, to do uh, We Want to Pump You Up or Wayne's World, um, Dana Carvey, Phil Hartman, depending on what the, what the show was, you know, you wouldn't know until middle of that week. Okay, we're going to need you for Thursday pre-record and a rehearsal on Friday with Paul Simon, who's coming in for the to host the show, and then Saturday morning you got to Saturday morning you got to be there the whole day. And things change, you know, on a dime. We uh, do the dress rehearsal eight to eleven. And the dress rehearsal is usually long because they're still trying out skits, you know. They have too much material. They have more than can fit into 90 minutes of, of programming. So even though you play those things, uh, they may be cut before the actual live, you know, at 1130. Uh, and you never know, you know, who's going to make it, what skit is going to make it, or... Um, a couple of times they even cut the second musical number. You know, we were playing with somebody and they, it's uh, Lorne Michaels' decision, you know, the producer's decision. 
Yeah. So at the end of the day, you just really have to be on your toes to to do that gig because totally. I mean, from one second to the next, <laughs> you know, you know, you may not even know what's going on. Just hey, we're cutting this piece and going into the next one, right? Yeah. No. Lots of times, uh, I actually ran into Lenny Pickett on the street yesterday, and we talked about the old days. And Leon Pendarvis, the conductor, has been there now for. 38 or 39 years. So there were times when Leon Pendarvis, you know, were just pointing three, four, not even <laughs> four. You know, I would get four uh, to, to back somebody up who was coming on uh, or just play something, you know, and he would play something. There was another great uh, pianist, Cheryl Hardwick, who was there, and she would come up with things on the spot, you know, classical style or a blues style or some jazzy thing and Gundarvis would play and just listen to what Cheryl was playing and, and fit in there. <laughs> uh, same thing with GE, you know, he would say blues, keep G. <laughs> yeah. And three, four, you know, here's the tempo and you just got to jump right in. Well, it- he did one thing that somebody posted recently with when, uh, Valerie Bertinelli was the host, but she had her boyfriend, her I guess her husband, Eddie Van Halen, came on, and GE wrote this cool uh, blues shuffle with stops in it, I forget what he called it, so that Eddie could come and play with the band. And it's exciting, because it was all spur of the moment. And he's an amazing, I mean, GE's great guitarist, but Eddie Van Halen is like, unique you know he was totally unique player so that was a very exciting uh segment you know where he's sitting in and ge is um kind of writing the tune as he goes along (laughs) yeah i I mean i just amazing stuff and yeah i'm i'm curious did is that kind of what led you to the bob dylan gig because you know i mean obviously i don't know but everybody says that playing with Bob Dylan is kind of the same way that it's live without a net because Bob doesn't do set lists and he may decide to do an old spiritual hymn from 1785 in the middle of a show. Was that your experience playing in Bob's band? Uh, A lot of it was. Yeah, definitely. Uh, We did have a set list. But a lot of times he would leave that set list and play, as you said, 1785. We'd play Barbara Allen, which is, uh, which I happen to know from the original uh, A Christmas Carol movie with Alistair Sim. One of the final scenes in the movie is when uh, Scrooge comes back to accept his nephew's invitation for dinner. And when he opens the door, uh, somebody's at the piano playing Barbara Allen and uh, all the couples are dancing in the room and then he joins the party. Very touching scene. But I always love that song for that reason. You know, it goes with that scene in the movie. He, Bob loved that. We played that often. But he would also play, you know, Woody Guthrie things and Lead Belly things and uh, uh, different folk, you know, spirituals and folk songs and stuff, a lot of which I had never heard before. I just fall in, you know, and try to make it sound good. Try to try to get with Bob, whatever he's playing. But yeah, the whole 
Bob thing came about with GE. And at the time, it was T-Bone Woke on bass. And he said one day, what, how would you feel about playing with Bob Dylan? I said, sure, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> and as far as I knew, it was just a, a jam. You know, I never thought it was an audition. <laughs> uh, so we went to this place uh, called Montana Rehearsal Studio, and we played, I don't know, 50 or 80 different tunes. You know, not all Bob tunes. We played Beach Boys tunes, God Only Knows. We played um, uh, Hank Williams songs. We played Johnny Cash songs, you know. Uh, and we did play some of Bob's stuff from earlier albums. I remember playing Heart of Mine, which is one of my favorite Bob Dylan songs. Yeah. We never played like a Rolling Stone. I think we did play, you know, Subterranean Homesick Blues and Maggie's Farm and a couple of the more familiar ones. Uh, it's All Over Now, Baby Blue, Tangled Up in Blue, uh, Boots of Spanish Leather. Uh, you know, a lot of these I was familiar with, but not the way he was doing them. You know, we just tried to fit in and make it sound good and have fun, you know, and I had no idea it was an audition, but, um, I don't know if we did just a day or two days. Seems like we did more than one day because we played a lot of different material. And then, uh, his manager at the time said, what's, what is your June look like? I said, looks like, you know, the beginning of summer. <laughs> <laughs> and then they, they laid out, well, would you be available for uh, three months, you know, starting in June and going to the end of August, June, July, and August. I said, sure. So that happened, and it was fun. It was great. It was great to play with Bob. And T-Bone Woke at the time was uh, the musical director for Hall & Oates. So he declined. Uh, he didn't want to do it. He didn't want to leave Hall and Oates. So then we got uh, a guy named Kenny Aronson on bass, who's still around, great bass player, and he's the one who did the, that tour and subsequent tours because after three months, uh, everybody says goodbye, and so then you get a call a week later. Can you do? <laughs> Can he do the end of September to November? Okay, another three months. And then, you know, the end of November, they say, what are you doing in January? <laughs> so that's why they call it the never-ending tour, because yeah. they kept adding dates, you know, as as Bob was comfortable, I'm, I'm assuming, he was comfortable and wanted to keep doing it, and the his manager and booking agent and stuff kept, you know, putting in things. And we would do the U.S., then we did Canada, then we did Europe, then we did Scandinavia, then we did the Far East, not Far East, but the Middle East, and then back to, Amer you know, back to different venues uh, in America and then Canada. Uh, this went on for almost four years, you know. Um, amazing. And it was great. It was, he was wonderful. He was, you know... He's a genius, for, for one thing, you know, and, and this was when he was, I remember him turning 50 on the road, so 
he was still playing a lot of acoustic guitar. He played great electric guitar. He played harmonica. He sang great. Uh, and it was a, it was a joy, you know, it was a pleasure backing him up and everybody on the tour was great. GE was great. Kenny Aronson was great. Uh, and then at a certain point, Tony Garnier came in, uh, to replace Kenny and he's been there ever since. You know, 30 years later, he's still doing it. Yeah. Which wow. is great. I'm happy for him. Yeah. Wow, man. I mean, that that right there is a career, Chris. I mean, yeah. y- y- you know what I mean? Like, if you hung up your boots then, you won. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there's just so much more. But um, so I, I'll transition this way. Uh, this won't be a very good segue, but you know, you did all of these amazing gigs, you know, all this great recording, Saturday Night Live, Bob Dylan, um, shares in there, Michael Bolton, all these great things that you've done. But at some point, you have migrated back towards jazz, not that it ever left, but you know, you've now hung your shingle out as a band leader and a composer um, talk to me a little bit, because that's one of the themes of this show is, you know, so often as drummers, we're viewed only as side men or side women, right? And we're always beholden to an artist needing our services. Um, but one of the themes that we talk about all the time is, is we should all at least attempt to take control of our own careers. We're capable musicians capable to compose, um, and we can lead a band. So talk to me a little bit about your decision somewhere along the way to do just that. Well, uh, I always had bands, you know, from, from uh, two or three years after the backing up the strippers, you know, I knew that I wanted to have my own bands. And I started with, you know, traditional rock bands, guitar, bass, and drums, and then added keyboard. And then by the time I was in the beginning of high school, I guess, it really appealed to me to have horns in the band. Um, So three of my friends played trombone, tenor sax, and trumpet, and the band now included them. And it was because I wanted to do do more R&B, and I was, unfortunately, there are, I mean, fortunately for me, there are no tapes of me as the lead vocalist, but I was singing, you know, the R&D hits of the day as well as rock hits and stuff until we made a demo and I heard myself back <laughs> and then we hired singers. <laughs> but I've always, you know, the idea of, of leading the band appealed to me. The idea of composing always appealed to me. And uh, I wrote, you know, primitive tunes for those bands. And I wrote uh, primitive tunes for the rock bands that I was in. And some were rejected flat out. Now we ain't going to play that shit. (laughs) 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 Um, But by the time I was in stuff, uh, with those guys, it took a lot of guts to bring in uh, tunes that I had written with with stuff in mind, with Richard T. and Eric Gale and Cornell Dupree and Gordon Edwards, 
in mind. You know, I thought these are going to be, these are songs that they could really get their teeth into and they would have fun playing. And I remember the first time I brought one in, Gordon, the bass player, it was maybe, I think because I copied it in longhand, it was maybe six or seven pages long. And he unfurled it and yelled at me, what do you think you are, Tchaikovsky? (laughs) (laughs) But they played it. They played it. And eventually, when he called that tune on the bandstand, he called it the Ugly Duckling. So let's play Ugly Duckling. Because the tune kind of evolved you know, from a ugly duckling into this swan where everybody got to play and the audience liked it. And it featured uh, Steve playing, you know, these ridiculous fills leading into uh, letter A of the tune. And it had a section for Eric Gale to do his thing. And it had a section for Cornell Dupree to do his thing. Um, That was very satisfying, you know, that they agreed to to play it and that it eventually became, you know, part of the repertoire. I had a couple of tunes that I brought in. So that was inspiring. And by the time stuff was over, I was writing more for a band I had called Joe Cool. Uh, A couple of my tunes were recorded by them. And I think around that same time, early 80s, I went back to school. I went to Juilliard and studied composition and studied harmony and theory. And then I went to Manus College of Music. Then I also went to the New School for Social Research, which is now part of NYU School of Music. Um, And then I finally got the degree going to Western Connecticut uh, State University. And I was, you know, all the time refining my compositional skills and and listening to more jazz, listening to more of everything. But jazz appealed to me more and more. So this is the third uh, Chris Parker Trio album. And I have a couple of tunes on the first one, a couple of more tunes on the second one. And this one is basically all my tunes except for... Uh, the version of a monk tune we do, the opening tune. Otherwise, most of the tunes are mine. So, and they're, I think they're getting better. <laughs> well, I, I mean, just from an outsider's perspective, you know, and, and the, the the record that we're talking about right now is um, Tell Me, which is out on September 30th everywhere. Right. Um, you know, I, I've been spending some time with the record, listening to it and, um, you know, I, I'll, I'll, I'll put it this way. I have thoroughly enjoyed it. It's a brilliant record. It sounds phenomenal. Um, this is, um, you know, a, a, I, I wouldn't have known that. How do I want to say this? I wouldn't have known that, that you composed all of this and that's not taking anything away from you, but you put it on and you just get lost in the music and you're like, wow, this is just a great jazz trio just ripping, you know? Um, so congratulations on having a fantastic record that's coming out here in just a couple of days. 
Yeah. Thank you so much, Jamie. You're welcome. Um, it, it just sounds phenomenal. Um, you, you know, a, again, I, I'm not a jazz head per se. I'm, I'm a rock guy. But again, good music and bad music, right? I've listened through exactly. the album several times and th- have thoroughly enjoyed all of it. Great. That's great to hear. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about the trio because, um, y- you know, I-, I think everybody obviously knows there's different ways to compose a trio. But talk to me a little bit about your, your bandmates in the Chris Parker trio and, you know, the recording of this album, because it's brilliant. Well, uh, the pianist, Kyoko Oyobe, I met, uh, gee, it's 11 years ago, would be, I think, I think that's accurate. We met at a jam session, and I just love her touch. Uh, I love her rhythmic interpretation and of course her harmonies and when she solos you know it's unpredictable uh and i know that she draws on a lot of different piano influences as well as uh her native japan music you know okinawan folk songs and uh koto music and stuff i mean there's nothing I can throw at her that she doesn't say, oh, how about this, you know, and comes up with a, an approach to the tune that always makes me smile, always, uh, or makes me laugh right out loud, you know, oh my God, how did she, how did she throw that over these chambers? This is great. Um, so I really dig her as a player and as a person. She's a wonderful person. She's married to a bass player, um, uh, we do one of his tunes on the first trio album, and he's a composer, wonderful guy, French. Uh, and they now have a, geez, the year was four years old, I think, four or five. And so I just dig her approach. You know, it's, uh, I mean, piano is a percussive instrument, but she plays percussively and uh dynamically and she can as as you can hear on the record you know her her style is very fluid and yet um uh sensitive you know and empathic you know she'll listen to what what else is going around that's any good jazz player you know is is that way you know listens to what else is happening and and comments on it or builds on it or interprets it and then uh, spits it out a, a different way. Um, so she's, she's great that way. And I recently played with her because I needed somebody to cover a rehearsal for another gig. I have this, this other band called East Coast Meeting with a great singer named Dennis Collins. And the pianist in the band was unavailable. So I had her come and sight read some of these tunes and she was great. And the, Two other guys in the band said, wow, where did she come from? But she's uh, very adaptable and and the same, almost everything I said applies to Amin Salim as well. You know, we met uh, we met when uh, Kyoko and I were looking for a place to play on a regular basis and we found this great sushi restaurant that's not there anymore. 
on 7th Avenue South, and they had a upright piano, and they had a set of drums there. I said, this is perfect. You know, let's start here. And we tried a bunch of different bass players, a lot of them really good, but Amin came in and just nailed it. And we both, Kyoko and I both looked at each other and said, That's, this is the guy. Because he's a very forceful player, very rhythmic, great ideas. Uh, he's like a, a gentle giant. You know, he's forceful, but the sweetest guy in the world. Um, great solo ideas. And same thing, you know, with, with my material, he'll say, okay, all right, let's count it off. <laughs> you know, and, and he'll tackle it and bring something very special to it and very, uh, something I wouldn't have thought of uh, without his help, you know, and his, we, uh, a drummer friend of mine, Tim Horner said, you guys have a nice hookup. <laughs> which I had never heard before, but that's, that's what it is. We have a nice hookup. You know, we kind of lock in with each other. Uh, not like an art, not like Duck Dunn and Al Jackson Jr. or uh, Dave Garibaldi and Rocco Lapriesta, Tower of Power guys, you know, but a nice jazz hookup where it's, it's fluid, but it's, uh, the time is there, you know, so he's a great, partner a great rhythmic partner and a great melodic partner and uh between him and kyoko you know i have no fear of uh tackling some new composition of mine i'll bring it in and show it to him as long as it's written out correctly um count it off and and see what they do with it Um, and i'm guaranteed to be happy you know that's happened every time that we've recorded they bring something special to the proceedings, and uh, I'm always happy with the result. Well, and, and that's where the magic is. You know, if the composer is always happy with the end result, that's that's the sauce, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, so um, let me ask you this, and I've asked all of our, you know, prior guests on this podcast who compose um, and the answer is, is usually the same, but when you sit down to compose, are you starting rhythmically or are you starting from a, a melodic standpoint or does it depend? It's, it's always different. I mean, that sounds cliche, but, um, it is always different. I mean, certain, certain tunes start out with a baseline. I, I figure out a baseline either on my Fender Precision or on a on the lower lower half of the piano, come up with a bass line that that I think is cool, and then maybe record a little of that and try to come up with a drum beat that I think is cool, or a drum not a beat per se, but a feel that would work with that bass line, and then maybe add the melodic material on top of that. Other tunes. Uh, like uh, on the album Desperacito, the second tune, uh, I had those changes and that melody first. I was playing that melody and those uh, kind of tango figures uh, at the ends of the melody sections first, you know, before I had a, a drum beat or before the bass line was written. And the, uh, let's see, 
Minky, Don't You Weep, kind of the same thing. I was playing those changes before I, I came up with the bass line or the bridge to the tune. Uh, but I just like those changes, and they kind of work as an intro, and then they're incorporated into the rest of the tune under a rhythmic bed. So every tune is, is a little different. Um, oh, Inferno Avenue... That one started with lyrics. I wrote this, you know, five verses of lyrics that it's all about uh, recovery and being in hell. And it had all these metaphorical references, brimstone and the smell of sulfur and the devil. And uh, <laughs> I was in a, in, a, in a dark place, as they say, and trying to come out of it. And I had those lyrics before I wrote the changes or the melody. Or the, or the feel, you know, the feel is kind of, uh, dirgy, but it, it works for, for the lyric and it works for the melody, you know, which is pretty chromatic, uh, changes. But, so every, every tune comes up with, I mean, starts with something different, you know, a germ of an idea, either rhythmically or harmonically or lyrically. And then I try to expand on it, you know, and I've got a bunch of stuff on my phone, voice memos. I think my memory is pretty full, <laughs> uh, but I have, you know, little four bar phrases from something I recorded on the piano or I'm on the street and I hear something and I sing something into the voice memo. Um, or I sometimes, you know, I'm in waiting for a train or waiting uh, at the corner and somebody's having this loud conversation next to me, but the, the cadence, the cadence of their conversation is inspiring. Just the way they're talking, you know, and they'll put on the, you know, record it right then and then take that cadence and turn that into something, a rhythmic figure or the idea for a, for a new tune or the beginning of a new tune, maybe. And they're not all, you know, there's a lot of green apples, <laughs> as, uh, as somebody said. No, they're not all gems to start with. And some, you know, come out in a burst, uh, a burst of creativity. And the song is done by the end of the afternoon. And some of them I've got to kind of try to craft, you know. Well, this, this part is good up to here, but it really needs a bridge. And it needs some kind of uh, a pre-chorus leading into the chorus. Uh, you know, try to dissect it. Um, there's a great book by a friend of mine named Billy Seidman called Elements of Songcraft, where he addresses, you know, what it is to write a song and how the ideas come about and how you build on an idea and, and how to edit your ideas, probably most important of all, you know, because a lot of people are, are very creative and we come up with all kinds of stuff. But it's uh, getting to the, the salient points, you know, getting to the, to the actual inherent message, you know, what you're really trying to say and how you're really trying to say it in the most sincere way and, and in the most uh, economical way. You know, not every song can be seven minutes. <laughs> Uh, it's great if you can get it down to two and a half minutes or three minutes, you know, and, and say what you're trying to say and, and get out. 
Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I mean, I, so many things come to mind. I, I just remember, you know, Joe Perry saying that, you know, when you go into the studio to record an album, you have this guy called a producer and he's telling you which of your children get to grow up. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's a great metaphor. <laughs> you know, but I, I just, I, when I listened to this, I just found the, the, the record to be, um, you know, sometimes you, you put on a, a jazz trio record and it's very, um, the word I'm looking for is specific. Like it's very, you know, to the point um, and maybe too specific. Um this is a record that I think, you know, I'll listen to for the rest of my life for sure. Oh, you know, um, it's just one of those records. Yeah. But I mean, it's one of those records that you can put on and, you know, I, I don't want to say this in a bad way, but you can go on with your day, right? Like it's not going Uh to uh, suck the air out of the room. Some records do that in a good way in it and a bad way. Right. But this yep. is absolutely a record that you can put on. And, you know, um, if you're still at home working, you can get your work day done. Um, and it's just a, a, a joyful little soundtrack to your day. Um, so oh, I, great. yeah. And I hope that's what you were going for because that's absolutely what comes across. It's just a, a wonderful listen. Um, so I, I guess my curiosity is, uh, is the trio now your main creative outlet or are you still doing other stuff? Are you still doing other sessions and, and teaching and all those things as well? You no, know, the trio, you know, this record is very important to me and I'm, and I'm glad to, that it's coming out and I want to get the trio together to do some gigs. The difficulty is that Amin lives in Rome. Married a, an Italian lady, and they have a Nima is seven or eight now, maybe, and they live in Rome. That's his scene, and he does a lot of jazz gigs over there. I think he's going to London, maybe there right now to play with uh, Joe Locke, great vibes player, yeah. somewhere Ronnie Scott's or Six O Six Club or somewhere in London. Um, and I'm trying to get him to come to New York for a period, you know, and if I know that he's going to be in New York or in D.C. where his folks live, uh, I'll try to line up some gigs. But if I can book him for recording and he can build other things around that, maybe I can get him to come to New York for that. You know, I just I have maybe uh, six, possibly seven new tunes that are close to being ready to be recorded. So I would start the fourth Chris Parker trio album if he's going to be available. Um, but no, well, while that is, you know, uh, a finished project or this, this album is a finished project. I do other things. I mentioned this band East coast meeting. I have with uh, this great vocalist, Dennis Collins and a rhythm section and, uh, and tenor sax as well. We just did a gig last week at the Sugar Bar uh, in my neighborhood here, and it was really fun. It turned out really well. You know, Dennis is a great vocalist in the style of Donny Hathaway or Marvin Gaye or um, uh, 
Johnny Hartman. You know, he's a very he's can he can croon, but he can also uh, like Roberta Flack, um, who we work with a lot. Great vocalist, and I'm writing tunes that I hope he will sing if I can get him to listen to them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right um, on. But we haven't recorded anything, and I think that would be the next step with that band. Let's get in the studio and record a couple of these things with vocals and try to get a deal or try to get a um, some kind of production deal or get somebody interested in it. You know, go in the studio and record three or four things that we that we have ready to play. Um, so, and like I've got a project tomorrow with this great bass player, Lincoln Schleifer, who is producing a friend of his uh, who's coming up from Key West. And I'm, I have no idea what the material is like at all, but he, Lincoln called me and said, you know, we want your input, bring something special to it, and could be jazzy or it could be smooth jazzy or it could be R&B. He said, just, just bring all those hats. Bring all that, uh, you know, keep an open mind, which I always do, and and see what we come up with. So I'm I'm excited to do that tomorrow. On the weekend, I've got gigs with um, this re- kind of not really a review. It's a sh- they call it the '60s show, and it's a nice band, and we do only songs from the '60s, you know, like Donovan and. The zombies and some Beatles and some Stones and some zombies and some uh, Glenn Campbell and monkeys and uh, Love and Spoonful. We, I mean, it's two hours worth of music that's really fun to play. You know, it's the music I grew up with and that I was the lead singer for in the bands that I had when I was a teenager and a pre-teenager. <laughs> So, uh, we can't record, I mean, but it's a fun band to play with, and we've got gigs booked uh, through November, December, um, and that's just a, a fun thing to go play, you know, since it's music I grew up with, but there's a lot of different projects going on, you know, singer-songwriter projects and things of my own, and the band I mentioned and uh, a future trio album. So, and I have a couple of students, you know, I teach via Zoom or somebody comes to my studio uh, in the city. And usually it's one or two lessons. A couple of guys I had, you know, stayed with me for 12 or 15 lessons, you know, and uh, I, I, I give as much as I can in, in one lesson, you know, try to touch all these different bases and get people excited about their own playing. And not so much, you know, what I did on this record or what technique I have or why I am successful. Actually, I do touch on that. Why, you know, why are you successful? I try to give them the formula. Here's why I, I am successful or have been successful. It could all end tomorrow, Jamie. You oh, never know. Yeah, yeah. You, you don't have <laughs> but, to tell uh, me, but. <laughs> so, and that's, that's very gratifying, you know, to have a student who goes on to become a, a good player and uh, discovers 
the most exciting thing about it is that student discovers his own voice and discovers that, hey, you know what? I'm badass. I can, I can do this. I can, I can play this. And, um, that seeing that excitement, you know, seeing that light bulb go off above his head or her head is, is very gratifying. So, and if I can do that in one lesson, I'm as happy as they are. You know, it doesn't have to be a long drawn out thing. Here are the books. Here's the technique you should get together. Here's what uh, helped me. Here's what I think about when I'm playing. You know, I try to lay it all out there and and share as much as I can. Yeah. Well, I, and, you know, having that light bulb go off above the student's head, that's 80% of the battle is, that's right. you know, once you find the keys to the car, it becomes a whole lot easier to drive, right? That's the, <laughs> that's the analogy I'll use. But, you know, um, I, I'll just say this, you, you know, from a personal note, um, we were up in the city uh, in July. My daughter is a, a pre-professional ballet dancer. So the schools, oh the schools she's looking at is Juilliard, NYU, Columbia, you know, we're, wow. we're, we're, we're definitely uh, going to be city dwellers, I think, next year. So uh, you, you can oh, count on great. at least one lesson for me in the very near future. I'd love to do uh, a couple of things oh, with you. that'd be great, man. Yeah, that'd be great. For sure. But um, Chris, we're going to send some folks your way for this new record that's just absolutely brilliant. Again, it's, it's called Tell Me. Uh, it is out on September 30th, everywhere you can find fine music. Um, and your web address is chrisparkerdrums.com. Uh, correct me correct. if I'm wrong. Okay, good. No, um, that's it. But, it, you know, it's an open invite. Anytime you have a new trio release, if, if the other band does some recording, I, I would love to have you back. I feel like we've only just scratched the surface. So, oh. You know, well, you, I really appreciate it, Jamie. You've said some wonderful things and uh, gives me wonderful feedback on the record, which is really great to hear. No, it's and I'm sincere. You know, um, it's a great record. I have thoroughly enjoyed it, and I will continue enjoying it uh, for a long time to come. But Chris, please keep us posted here. Uh, on this show, uh, anytime you want to come back and talk, you're always welcome. But I I've just thoroughly enjoyed having you here. So thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Jamie. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Absolutely. Thanks so much. We'll talk soon. All right. All right, guys and girls, that's going to wrap up episode 151 of the Drum Shuffle podcast. As always, thank you so much for listening to this show and downloading it. Uh, we simply can't continue without all of you doing that week after week. Uh, as I do every week, I'm going to ask you to hit the subscribe button, the thumbs up, the heart, the smiley emoji, uh, whatever it is on the platform that you use to listen to this program. Uh, hit that uh, so you don't miss any of our great upcoming interviews that we have coming up over the next several weeks. The biggest thing you can do to help us is share a link with a friend. It costs you nothing and it means the world to us. And I sincerely thank you for those efforts. 
We answer every single email that we get here at the podcast. Uh, that email address is thedrumshufflepodcast at gmail.com. Our web address is thedrumshuffle.com, and you can always find more information on me over at jamieeds.com. I hope all of you have a fantastic week. I, uh, I am on my way out for vacation uh, as I get this episode ready to to publish, so getting some needed R&R on my side, uh, and I hope you guys can all do the same. Have a great week. Until next time, may your head stay strong and your sticks never break. Cheers, everybody.